So take your Bibles uh, and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 24. Uh, there was a change in the advertised reading this morning. It was down as 21. It's now 24. That is not because the new series of 24 has started on television. Purely coincidental. Uh, what, what I want to invite you to do with me this morning is to come in a kind of helicopter ride over a section beginning in chapter 20 and uh, then touching down on 24. And uh, this is a section in which Isaiah the prophet discovers that sometimes serving God can be a humbling, even humiliating experience as well as a difficult and demanding experience. God had given him from the very earliest days, as we read the first chapters of this book, a, a word for the church. It was a word for the people of God in his day. It wasn't an easy word to hear. It wasn't an easy word to say. And uh, eventually in chapter 6, when he's given a vision of the glory of God, some, something of the weight of that word encroached upon his heart to such a degree that it shaped everything that he did from that point onwards. But it wasn't just the word that God gave that was hard. There was a task from time to time that God gave that was hard. And we read about one of those in chapter 20. And I can illustrate to you perhaps just from my own experience something of what Isaiah had to go through. It was 1980. We'd returned from Canada to Scotland. Scotland, as you know, is not renowned for its summer weather. But we had a glorious summer that summer. It was a, I remember it was a Wednesday, and uh, the sun shone. It was warm. It made up for the rest of the months of the summer period where there was no sun and it was not warm. And so because I knew that was probably it for the, the season, I went downtown in my shorts. Well, you see, that's scarcely revolutionary. But there I was in this mining town in Scotland, walking down the street, and I came across one of our older senior church members. He was a grumpy old man. And uh, as he came towards me, he paused, and he looked me up and down. And he said in his broad, airy accent, You might as well be naked. <laughs> he was obviously not impressed with a minister wearing shorts. Now, I, I do say it was 1980. The shorts were not as snazzy as they are today, and they were probably skimpier than they are today, though I don't want you to imagine that, but it was not a pleasant experience for him, and nor was it for me. Now, why did I tell you that story? Well, I tell you that story because if you read Isaiah 20, you'll discover that God told him to do something a little bit even more embarrassing than that. He was to go into town every day for three years, in his boxer shorts, and wander around the city, whether it was summer, spring, fall, or winter, wander around, probably for a couple of hours every day, so that everybody saw him, and it was to go on for three years. It was to be a sign. It was to be a sign to everybody that they should listen to what he was saying, that they should listen to the prophecies that God was making through him, so that it registered in the popular mind what was being said, which is why, of course, 
When the prophecies came true, Isaiah got his prophecies in the Bible in the first, first place. If you ever wondered why it was that people like Isaiah, who say such hard things to the people of Judah and Jerusalem, and who say such damning things about the people of God in their generation, nonetheless managed to have what they said kept and eventually put into the Bible as we have it today. One of the one of the things that he is doing as he's wandering around uh, the town is that he is underlining these very specific prophecies that you will find in chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 of this. And that's the foundation on which we come to it today because it's because those very specific prophecies were fulfilled that we can take him seriously when he talks about things that are in the future for us, chapter 24. So come with me as we do a kind of helicopter ride over these chapters together. And we remind ourselves that what Isaiah is doing is two things. He's writing for people in his own day, and he's writing for people now, for our day, and people after our day. And he is writing about things that are future for the people of his own day that will be fulfilled so that when we come to read about what he has to say about our future, we can look at the way in which everything he said back then came true. And you can see what his point is. In the preceding section, we've learned that God is the Lord of history and that God is the Lord of the nations. That is, all the nations of the world. That there is nowhere that you can go in the world, whether they call themselves a Christian nation or not, where God, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is not the only God there is. Wherever you go, He will not be displaced. He will not be marginalized. He claims authority over every man, woman, boy, and girl in the entire world. He is the Lord of the nations. And not only is he the Lord of the nations, but he governs the fall, the rise and the fall of those nations. So look at chapter 20. Here we have the story of the fall of Ashdod, the capital city of Philistia. The Philistines who had been a pain in the neck for the Israelites over many, many years. And here in chapter 20, Isaiah describes the imminent fall of Ashdod and Philistia to the Assyrians. He even mentions the name of the king, Sargon, the king of Assyria, who would come to Ashdod and fight against it and capture it. It's a very specific prophecy. And do you know there was a period of time in which people were arguing in the late 19th, early 20th century, they were arguing that Isaiah had got it all wrong. The only Sargon they knew had ruled over southern Mesopotamia between 2,335 and 2,279 B.C. And it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that they discovered through archaeological research another Sargon, Sargon II, who ruled between 722 and 705, the very period about which Isaiah is speaking here. In fact, in 1963, they actually uncovered a monument in the ruins of Ashdod, the city of Philistia, that commemorated Sargon's very victory, which Isaiah describes in chapter 20. 
of his book. In other words, for those who want to belittle and rubbish the Bible, you better wait, because in the next generation, your very criticisms, your very critique, may very well be held up to the kind of ridicule that I'm holding up before you this morning of those who argued that Sargon did not, was not a king in Isaiah's time. The fall of Ashdod. And then in chapter 21, we have the fall of Babylon. Babylon, the great power to the east of the Israelites, was at this point not a world player. There was a couple of hundred years to go before it became the real master of the universe for a while. But it too, Isaiah says, it too will fall. It had emerged, as it were, from the desert. It had created an amazing center of population and influence. The great hanging gardens of Babylon became a, a wonder of the world. It turned the desert into a fruitful garden city. It was an amazing achievement. But Isaiah says in this chapter, let me tell you, this great empire, which hasn't even reached its zenith yet, will reach its zenith and then it will decline and eventually Babylon, the great city of Babylon itself, will return to desert. And its final fate will be terminal and final. And even though Saddam Hussein tried to rekindle the powers of Babylon, nonetheless it never happened. And to the desert it has returned. Thirdly, chapter 23, sorry, 22. Jerusalem. Jerusalem thought itself invincible. Jerusalem thought itself above the nations roundabout because they had, they had a history. They had a history with God of victory over the nations. And they thought that that victory, that, that success was their right. It was going to happen. Whatever they did, it was going to happen. But here in chapter 22, Isaiah is addressing the future. He's addressing a particular time in the future. When the Assyrians are going to come south and are going to invade Judah and Jerusalem. When that happened, the Assyrians came down through northern Israel and they obliterated it. They dispatched into exile the inhabitants of northern Israel and they disappeared. The ten tribes of Israel disappeared under the influence of the Assyrians. They marched into Judah. They burnt everything they could. They demolished everything they could. They had a scorched earth policy as they marched down the road towards the city of Jerusalem. But when they arrived at Jerusalem, God himself intervened. He created such a commotion in their camp that they retreated instead of besieging the city. And Isaiah pictures that event in chapter 22. You've all gone up, he says, all of you to your housetops. There you are. They, they see this great army parked around Jerusalem and, and somebody says in the morning, one morning, do you know that they're packing up and they're going home? It's amazing. There's been no fighting yet, no battle yet. And there they all are going. Let's go and see. They climb up to their rooftops so that they can see. They start shouting, shouts of joy. Verse 2 of chapter 22. They're exultant. This is great. Here are the Assyrians. They came marching into our territory and there they are going home. And isn't it wonderful to be victorious? And Isaiah says to them, that's what you'll do. And you will be spared from the Assyrians. 
But that's not the story over yet. The Babylonians will come and they will utterly destroy you. They will, they will utterly demolish your city. You will use every resource you have in order to counter them, but you will fail in every resource you have. You'll go to the forest, the house of the forest, verse 8, where all the spears, swords, and shields were kept, a house established by King Solomon, and you'll take every, you'll take every kind of weapon out of there to use, and they will be of no use to you. You will be demolished. And he describes in verse 14, chapter 22, the impending fall of unfaithful Jerusalem. Lord of hosts has revealed himself. He's going to pour out judgment on Jerusalem. Not only will there be a fall of Jerusalem, but there will be a collapse of the house of David. In chapter 22, verses 18 to the end, he describes two men, a man called Shebna, who became very influential, who built a little empire for himself, and who built a lovely tomb for himself to be buried in, and who thought that he would remain at the top of his career right to the very end and have a great, glorious burial. And Isaiah says, that man who's to come, Shebna, has no chance. He will be, he will be stripped of everything, and everything will be given to another man called Eliakim. Eliakim, a descendant of King David, and he'll have the insignia of office. Verse 22, God will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He'll become the influential leader of the nation. And he'll be fastened, verse 23, like a peg in a secure place and become a throne of honor in his father's house. And, and so he will for a while. It will be as if all of, the, all of the merits and all of the hopes and all of the dreams of the people are hanging on that peg that's called Eliakim. And people will think, there you have a son of David who is worthy. But the peg will break. And Eliakim will fall. And the house of David will fall. And it will seem as if all the promises of God have fallen to the dust with him. Absolute collapse. And here in chapter 22, Isaiah is being prophetic. He's looking over 100 years, 150 years into the future. And he's saying the Babylonians will come. And the Babylonians will bring an end to the house of David. And they will bring an end to Jerusalem and Judah. They will demolish the lot. There will be famine conditions. He describes the famine conditions in chapter 22. He gives an accurate description ahead of time of what's going to happen over 150 years in the future. But that's not all that will fall. Next he turns to Tyre. Tyre was the beginning of the, the whole world, the wider world that stretched out across the Mediterranean Sea. Tyre was a, an economic powerhouse in the region. It was, the, it was a duet along with Babylon. Babylon to the east, Tyre to the west, represented everything that was powerful, influential, politically, uh, on top of things. Uh, it was one of the great economic centers of that period. In fact, the whole Mediterranean basin was at their disposal, and they used that. You notice in verse 3 of chapter 23 that it is, the, it is the merchant of the nations, it's called. The merchant of the nations. 
Your revenue talks about the revenue, talks about the stronghold of the sea, talks about the progress of their work, talks about all of the things that they have. Verse 8, their merchants, the merchants are wealthier than princes. Their merchants are more influential than those who come from royal families. Their traders are the most honored of the, of the earth. Here is a great economic powerhouse. And the interesting thing for us is, as Christians, that in the New Testament, the book of Revelation goes back to the description of Babylon and Tyre and brings these descriptions together and blends them together in the description of what in Revelation is called Mystery Babylon the Great. Mystery Babylon the Great represents the great world empires. It represents what we might call the world system. That is, all of those things that conspire together culturally, economically, politically, spiritually, commercially to create a power, a force, an influence that exceeds or combats the influence of God's kingdom in the world. The world system. In the New Testament, the world system rules everything. In Revelation chapter 18, all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of Babylon's sexual impurity. The kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. In other words, Babylon is like a prostitute. Everything goes to her. Everything comes from her. She dominates the world in which we live. Her commercial success, her moral subversion, the world we live in is not a friend to God. It is not a friend to God. All these Christian books that talk about transforming the world or redeeming the world or whatever, you understand how the Bible actually talks about the world? The Bible actually says about the world that it is the enemy of God. That it is coming to nothing. That it is passing away. In the New Testament, the fall of Babylon and the fall of Tyre, these two metaphors for the world's city, the city of humanity in opposition to God, are used to describe the fall of this world system one day. Here's how the Apostle John describes it. All that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride in possessions, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Here is a description of the world system and the world system is not going to last forever. We cannot build anything on this world system. It is going to be shaken. Everything is going to be shaken. The writer to the Hebrews talks about that day when everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The foundations of this culture, the foundations of this civilization, the foundations of this world system, shaken until the day of the Lord. We cannot redeem the world 
in the world. We live as redeemed people. We work hard and we do our, our daily duties. And do you know something? Why, one of the reasons we do that is captured in chapter 23, verse 18. Because in that day, in that day, everything is going to be, is being done for the sake of God's people. Let me, let me read to you just the end of that chapter 23. Her merchandise, that is Tyre, representing the world system. Let me read from verse 17. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will visit Tyre. She will return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world and the face of the earth. Here is a great behemoth of cultural, economic, commercial power. And it is dominating the face of the earth, verse 17. And yet here is her destiny. Get this. Her merchandise, her wages, <clears throat> everything that she has accumulated, all the scientific inquiry, investigation, and achievement that she has funded, every new venture that she has initiated, Every good idea that she has generated, everything, her merchandise, what she stands for, the things she has, this world system, guess what? At the end of the story, look at this. It will not be stored or hoarded. Her merchandise will ab supply abundant food and fine clothing for those who dwell before the Lord. Do you know what that means? It means that when you go out into the world, the things you're working on, the things you're working at, the things you see around you, the achievements that you applaud, all of that is coming to you in the end. It is the people of God who will inherit the earth, Jesus said. It is all coming to you. The people you're working with, the people who are achieving great things, are doing all of that for the sake of God's kingdom. It's we who will enjoy it and enhance it and enlarge it in the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah describes this great kingdom, this great influence, this great power, and ultimately all that it does for itself is coming to those who dwell before Yahweh, before the Lord. Well, now we're ready for chapter 24. We're going to touch down here just for a few minutes. Chapter 24 is different from those chapters. Those are very specific. They name names. You can go back now in history and you can see Every detail that Isaiah said about those places has come true. Chapter 24 is cryptic. It's less clear. It's looking further forward. It's looking beyond the boundaries of the experience of the people of Isaiah's day. See, Isaiah could talk about Tyre because they knew about Tyre. He could talk about Babylon because they knew about Babylon. Even though they weren't what they were going to be, nonetheless, they knew about those places. 
But in chapter 24, he talks about things way beyond the boundaries of your and my experience here and now in 2014. And so he's cryptic. It's sometimes called the little apocalypse. It's like a, it's like a book of Revelation, just taken and kind of pushed into this little section. Secondly, it's cosmic. It's cosmic. The Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. Verse 3, the earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered. Verse 4, the earth mourns and withers, the the world languishes and withers. Verse 5, the earth lies defiled. The curse devours everything. Here, Here is the world at the end of time. Here is the end of history as we know it. Here is destruction, a twisting, a scattering. It is universal. It is indiscriminate. Here is, here is a cosmic event in which this globe is convulsed by judgment. In which the world system that sustains and upholds everything will be brought down finally and utterly. Why is this happening? Look at verse 5. It is happening because the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. In other words, human beings' sin is the supreme environmental threat. There's all kinds of talk over in the UK just now. Uh, Very irritating listening to the news there. Very irritating. And uh, and, I... Christine told me not to be political, so I won't be political at all. But uh, let me just say this. There's a whole lot of talk over there about environmental threats and not wanting to do this and that and gasoline prices and all all this kind of stuff and cleaner energy and and, and so on. And I'm I'm not taking a position on any of those, though you could probably guess what it is. But nonetheless, I'm not going to do that. All, All I'm saying is this, that this text tells us that the real threat to the environment, the real threat to the environment is people, sinful people. That will lead to that ultimate conflagration of which Isaiah is writing here, when it's twisted and scattered and desolate. At the end of the day, the whole world is in anguish. The the universe, the, the, the very planet on which we are living, is feeling the after effects of human sin. It's going to be a cosmic event. And thirdly, it's going to be a cataclysmic event. The language of devastation, destruction, dispersion, disintegration is the same kind of language you find Jesus using when he talks about the end of the world. And uh, he talks about unquenchable fire, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or when the Apostle Paul talks about people being shut out of the presence of God. And why is this all happening? Look again at verse 5. Its inhabitants have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Here is the reason for final judgment. The reason is 
that every human being born into the world is born into a covenant relationship with God. Everyone. This reference to the covenant here is probably, first of all, a reference to Genesis chapter 9 and the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, which was a reinstatement of the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve in the garden. It was a reminder of that original covenant. And there in that garden of Eden, God made a covenant with humanity. Here's my law. Written in your conscience. Every human being, every man, woman, boy and girl, everybody has that law written on their conscience. And when we break that law, when we break the law of God, we are breaking the covenant, the everlasting covenant with God. We're breaking it. And it's because we have broken that law. You see, it doesn't matter if you were born in a country that isn't a Christian country. Whether it's a Christian country or a Buddhist country or a Muslim country or wherever you were born and brought up, you are all, we are all, we are all, wherever we come from, responsible to keep the law of God written in our conscience, in our heart. Because we've broken that law, we have brought down upon the universe judgment. But there's more here. God plans world history around his people. They keep cropping up in this story again and again. They keep cropping up. Sometimes they're described in Isaiah as a remnant. Just a little bit that was put to the side. Sometimes they're the gleanings. That is the bits of the harvest left behind once the crop has been reaped. The bits that have fallen down. Sometimes God's people are described as the leftovers. And just as at the time of the flood when the world was drowned, only a few were saved. So in the final judgment, a few will be saved to inherit the new earth. And these few are scattered among the nations. Look at verses 14 to 16 of chapter 24. Here are people who, who are going to be caught up in the conflagration of that day. When the kingdoms start to collapse, when everything that can be shaken is shaken, when there's economic collapse, final economic collapse, social collapse, when God withdraws his common grace. You know, one of the, one of the elements of that promise to Noah was that God would retain his common grace towards people. Common grace is what makes a person that doesn't believe in God or who hates God a nice person or a kind person, or an altruistic person, or a person you can depend on. Common grace is what makes the world bearable, that limits the effects of sin. But in the end of history, Paul says in Thessalonians, and here Isaiah says it in this chapter, common grace will be withdrawn, the grace of God will be withdrawn. Can you imagine what horrific days those will be? Nothing to alleviate, nothing to hold back. That which restrains will be taken away, Paul says. And believers will be there in those days. You and I may be, some of you younger people, you may be there in those days. And here is the feature of those who are believers in those days, verse 14. They lift up their voices and they sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. 
They shout from the west, uh, from the east, give glory to the Lord in the coastlands of the sea. Wherever they are, wherever they find themselves, to the ends of the earth, verse 18, we hear their songs of praise and glory to the righteous one. They suffer like everybody else suffers. They suffer in a way others don't suffer because they're persecuted for righteousness' sake. But they praise nonetheless. They praise God nonetheless. And when you come to verses 17 to 22, you find this judgment, the final judgment, falling upon humanity. Look at verse 17 and 18. Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you. <clears throat> Here you are, you're leaving your house. It's just caught fire. You step out the front door and the piano falls on your head. You clamber up after the, out of the piano pieces. You make your way to the sidewalk. And a bus mounts a sidewalk and knocks you over. You get up again and you're staggering on. You cross the road to the other side of the street. And there's a manhole cover lifted. And you fall into the manhole. That's the picture that's painted here. He who flees the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs out of the pit will be caught by the snare. doesn't matter where you go. You, can't, you can run, but you cannot hide from God on that final day of judgment. And the whole world is caught up in that day. And yet, God does everything. God does everything to rebound to his own glory. Look at verse 23. The climax signals the beginning of God's new order. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. What's he talking about there? He's talking about that final day. He's saying that at the end of the day, when everything is shaken, all will remain standing. When everything is desolate, all will remain whole. When everybody is scattered, who will remain gathered? When everybody is banished, who will still have access to God? When everything is gone, when everything is gone, Zion will remain. The church will remain. When everything is shaken, the church will remain. And the very last word in the Hebrew of this chapter, the very last word is the word glory. Glory. Oh, that will be glory for me. On that day when everything is shaken, everything comes apart, everything falls to pieces, the world system comes to its final, complete, and utter end. That will be glory. The splendor of God bursting upon our vision. As Jesus says, Father, I pray for them. You've given me them out of the world. They don't belong to the world. They belong to me. 
And I pray that they may see my glory. And that's the destiny of those who today belong to Zion, the city of God, the church of God, the people of God. Glory. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your great mercy, you would so stir our hearts and minds, so capture our imagination, so grip our thought, that just as those people in Jerusalem were shocked and full of horror at Isaiah's bizarre behavior for that three-year period, were made to think and listen and remember what he'd said. This morning we pray that you would make your word so fix itself in our minds and hearts that whatever happens, whatever happens in our lifetime, if we should be living to see that terrible day of the Lord or not, or whether we should live to see some echo of it in which everything it seems is being torn apart, Give us to see that our destiny as your people is glory. Glory. Both to see you and to be like you. And to be with you. Forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.